Brother Trevor, thank you for coming on the podcast today, Eva. Yeah, welcome in, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is super exciting. Is this your first time here to the space? Yeah, this to is the my space, first right? time. Yeah, I mean, I've been like, I've watched a couple of the podcasts and seen you as you were working so hard. Like, how, how long did it take to get it up to like where it is now? Um, Since what, like Jan- in mid-January, maybe? Yeah, second week January. Yeah. Yeah, that's when we kind of got the space, but... A lot of it is just like cleaning and stuff. Mm, that's for right. The first, yeah. yeah, like when we had first lunch, you guys saw like paint all over. You were just like going all out. I mean, it looks it looks amazing. And yeah, like coming here, I felt like it was like going into the Bat Cave, bro. Especially this corner, no. Like <laughs> yeah. this, this yeah, corner like is it. the Bat Cave. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah tr- that little back door back there, brother. Where's Rachel? Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> You got all your different suits hung up, like like the like the. That's like what the we talked about. No, yeah. Oh, no, we yeah. wanted it. Yeah. yeah, I wanted it in like a um. Like you a see the shoes? Like yeah, you see like the shoes <laughs> where they have the magnet and then it's just floating. Yeah, I wanted just Kumu's hat, the oh, necklace. Yeah. You know what I mean? Perfect. Just floating. Yeah, yeah, but nah, yeah, it's been it's been sick. Um, you know, I mean, mo- getting into the space and then, and then just building it out so, so that we can create more content consistently, and then and then have guys like you in, you know, come in talk story. Um, and you know, a lot of the good ideas that we, that we have talking story just, just comes out just naturally. Um, but thank you for coming again. And, you know, I just want to, me and Brian are always just trying to have guys that we are interested in, just have them here, talk story, get to know them a little bit. Oh, well, yeah. And it's like kind of surreal for me getting the tap so early. Cause it seems like just yesterday I was like, damn, I was like watching your videos and like always just like cracking up and like always felt, I don't know. Like when I first moved to Kauai, it was like, you, you want an, a way in to understand the place. And for me, like, it's always been history, archeology span being kind of like the work I do and the kind Bruh. of nerd I am. Uh, but for like, through humor and comedy, that's like an amazing way yeah. to get to know a place and really understand it. And mm-hmm. I think that's like, I'm just like a sucker for authenticity too. So like all the kind of like local inside jokes and stuff, it's just like, you feel like you get an insight into life, into that place, even if you don't fully understand it at first. Yeah. And that's why I feel like your stuff just appeals, like could appeal to anyone basically, even if you're just starting to learn about what kind of some of the language means and there's some of the references yeah. if you don't get it all at once like you kind of i don't know at least for me like i've always just thought it's hilarious because like you're just getting like all these different angles of what life here is like mm-hmm. yeah you give it some time you know what i mean you might come you <laughs> might you might start making local local comedy oh, <laughs> yeah. when did you move here trevor uh, it was a couple years back. I mean, I've I've had family on island for a while, and it was really I had been living in Russia uh, off and on, working on an archaeological dig, and then pandemic hit, and uh, I kind of got stuck with my brother for a while, and then decided to visit my cousin here, who was working at a chef as as a chef, and then uh, yeah, it just found a couple projects and collaborations and it seemed like there was like a reason for me to be here because at first I was kind of like I thought I'd maybe stay for a month or two kind of felt like ooh, do I want to be one of those like transplant guys who's like oh yeah like you know now I'm this super local and like oh yeah and like I want to be like part of basically pushing people out by taking up space but I felt like there was at least a couple justifications if you will um working with some different ohana from around the island um for projects that felt meaningful and felt like, you know, as long as they're going, you know, I felt like there's a, a reason to keep going. Mm-hmm. 
Because, I mean, you just kind of met Xavier through, what, social media, right? Yeah. Like, you DM'd him, and then, like, because I remember Xavier saying, dude, I met this guy on, well, not met him, but, like, DM me with this guy, and he, like, kind of told the first story, the, the I guess, kind of referencing your, your time in Russia and, like, archaeology and artifacts and what that turned into. Yeah, well, I think it was, like, yeah, I just DM'd Xavier, and then I was just, like, this, you know, and I think I saw you at Aloha Roastery or something like Bruh, that. Bro, that's what it, no, I it ran Harper. into Harper first. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 so, so, before, rewind, because I seen your doc, or, what was it, film, what would you call it, on Polyhelic? Yeah, yep, yep, the little short piece, yeah, we're, we're working on a larger version, but, yeah. Yes, so I seen that, okay, but after I couldn't whatever i couldn't find like who made it or, or or i couldn't trace it back i seen the name i'm pretty sure i couldn't trace it back to anyone's account but i ran into harper and she was just telling me oh um i think we may have been we were talking already out dm so when i seen when i met harper who i never i never even knew was your other half you know what i mean she kind of struck me by surprise she's like oh yeah trevor's trevor's my boyfriend this and that he he says that you guys talk sorry i'm like what yeah, I think I was there that day. Oh, for real? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. See, I mean, no, no, but it was very much like, oh, yeah, you know, like kind of a surprise. Yeah, and then and then boom, you know, next thing you know, freaking, I don't even know how or when we met. Like, like, um, do, do you remember? I don't. Yeah, I think it was like after that. Then we started texting. And we we're like, oh, we should like just meet up and talk stories sometime. I think it might have been. Oh, you know what it was? It was uh, the beer company, no? Yeah, yeah. We went, yeah, we went and got lunch there before one, uh, one of, one of my expeditions. That was before I went to Botswana. Brah, when we were outside. advice from you about uh, uh, off-roading. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's that's when you had the script. Yes. Wait, so is that where I learned about your archaeology? Yes, I believe so. And And your treasure hunting? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> guys, if you guys don't know, I'm going to tell you right now, before I got into comedy, I thought so I was going to be an archaeologist. You know, if you guys look, you guys can pull up the receipts and look on Instagram um, and search the username Antique Hawaii, and you're going to see all my digs and all my adventures. So so talking to Trevor, c- can you kind of tell people like, because I don't know, in my mind, you're a freaking national treasure, treasure hunter, everything that I want to do as far as adventures. So what is it that you do in that line of work? Yeah, so I've worked in archaeology, cultural heritage protection context for like the past maybe six, seven years now. And at first it was just curiosity that led me there. I um, was living in New York City uh, before I moved to Russia and I was working mostly in documentary film, like expedition films. And Mm -hmm. I'm a member of this organization called the Explorers Club. So and, sick. Uh, yeah, kind of, it almost sounds made up. It's like this, the headquarters is in Manhattan uh, near the Museum of Natural History or like on the other side of the park, but sort of similar vibes to it where you go in and the members are first on the top of Mount Everest, first down to the bottom of Marianas Trench. All of the oh moon landings had Explorers Club members and you just kind of feel like, wow, is there anything left to be done? Uh, there's so much that, these members have are continuing to explore when when was that when when was that that group or or that you know what I mean that entity like created 
So it was founded in 1904, um, and before then it was originally the American Arctic Club, so it was a lot of Arctic exploration going on. Um, and then as it was founded, you had members like uh, Peary and Matthew Henson that were going for the North Pole, which they achieved in 1909. Um, Mental. And, yeah, you go into these sort of hallowed halls with old maps, and you kind of feel like, wow, like I would love to go on an expedition. And I was at – there's there's a bar there. They serve kind of like – dried crickets and like other weird drinks <laughs> okay and, um oh like the kind like harry potter like like <laughs> yeah. universal yeah okay <laughs> yeah. and uh i met this uh swiss archaeologist who he specializes in remote sensing archaeology so using satellite imagery to look for sites mm-hmm. and he was looking for tombs in central asia so across you know he was mostly he did his phd um his field site was in xinjiang which is the northwestern part of china okay um but then later on, we started doing expeditions to southern Siberia as well, because uh, in our first sort of missions to, to Xinjiang got a little bit hairy. We were detained in a military border outpost. It's the surveillance is really hardcore. And um, yeah, if you why were you guys detained? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if you follow on the news. There's this uh, ethnic <clears throat> minority called the Uyghurs that they're like a, a Muslim minority in yeah. northwestern China. And it's just one of the most surveilled places on the planet. Like so, just ring cameras everywhere, like what? You- yeah, so like they even have like the it feels like Minority Report, like retina, <laughs> yeah. uh, retina tracing. They have oh. like if you even buy a knife, there's like a like a barcode that will basically track that knife because uh, in two thousand in the two thousand tens there was like a big backlash to the Han Chinese that were moving into that part of China, and there were some uh, violent uh, outbreaks of protests that happened and sort of like the backlash to that. Um, there are these like re-education camps. It's actually a really sad situation in northwestern China. But yeah, it's gnarly. It's really oh, heavy. Yeah, and yeah. the media does not cover it much. Um, oh, it's, oh it's, it's, it's happening. No, yeah. right now. Oh, yeah. wait. Like, like as we speak. Okay, wait, wait. So the Han, you said the Han Chinese. You mean, is, I mean, this is not, I'm not even trying, this is just me trying to like paint the picture. Han's like from Mulan? <laughs> no, no, not that. Oh, oh, okay, okay, yeah. the Huns. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. And they, um, they may be a little bit more Mongolian. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, people think of like China, like Chinese is this massive group of people, but there's actually a lot of different ethnic minorities yeah. and, and diversity within China. And Han Chinese just refers to the, you know, <clears throat> Beijing or bigger like groups of Chinese that, um, you know, are now going into these other parts and have been, mm-hmm. and it's sort of a similar situation to Tibet in some ways, although it's a super complex issue. Um, and But there's fascinating, it's interesting because a lot of the really fascinating archaeology happens in these border zones where, where there used to be no borders there. Now, because there's so much political turmoil, you can't go and explore and figure out what's there just because they're militarized border zones. Yeah. But the ancient cultures used to go back and forth between... All, like Central Asia was basically this road of the steppes where, yeah. you know, you could ride on horseback for thousands of kilometers. And it was this kind of, uh, it was a conduit for not just for trade, because people think about like the Silk Road as like a, a trade that would go from, from east to mm-hmm. west and back and forth. But it was also a trade of ideas and, and concepts. Crazy. Yeah. Okay. So that's super crazy. Um, so you were detained where? In Asia. Yeah, so we were on the border of Kazakhstan um, in Xinjiang, or between China and, and Kazakhstan, and, I mean, like, two random dudes in a military border zone with a drone. 
uh, looking for for sites was not. not yeah, you get arrested right here, Lihui. But it was you know my project partner Gino. He was like, yeah, you know, it's it's not. It, it's very normal to get detained. And I was like, oh, I wish I had known that before. But <laughs> Before um, I signed up. Uh, <laughs> and, and honestly, like, we were super lucky. And there's so many people now in, in <clears throat> Xinjiang who, you know, they're detained. But, like, the translators we work with and stuff, like, they're they're still in these, quote-unquote, re-education camps. Okay, so um, so you guys were detained. What were you guys looking for out there, bro? Mm. <laughs> like... So uh, what Gino does is he, with this remote sensing, with these satellite images, you can find these burial mounds, tombs that these horseback warrior nomads built relatively easy because they're these like circular burial mm-hmm. mounds. Um, and this culture really came, you know, so we, it's kind of a gray area of when horses exactly were domesticated. It's sometimes four to 6,000 years back. Holy um, crap. But for sure, by the Iron mm-hmm. Age, by about 3,000 years ago, <clears throat> like there were these different groups of horseback yeah. warrior nomads that figured out, like, if we ride on horseback and turn backwards with a bow and arrow, like, you can wreak some havoc. And they were known from the Chinese in the East uh, mm-hmm. to the Greeks and Persians, and they fought even against the, the Egyptians. And so they were written about as these, you know, precursors to the Mongols, because everyone knows Chinggis Khan. Yeah. Mm. This was like 2,000 years before that, the guys oh. who kind of first figured yeah. out this this warrior technology. Oh, imagine that. Because, I mean, you guys watch polo, right? Yeah. But <laughs> imagine nailing somebody with one, with anything, even oh, yeah. with a bat. Yeah. That's freaking crazy. <laughs> There's no way <laughs> I could. So you guys were looking for these burial mounds out there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you guys find any? Yeah, so we found a lot of them. Um, unfortunately, many were recently looted. Um, mm-hmm. And so that kind of led me along <clears> this uh, kind of quest to try to understand why were these burial mounds being looted? Why were they being torn up? Because you hear about, you know, oh, museums hundreds of years ago were just not really scientifically digging up. Uh, tombs they would just try to find the treasure and mm, yeah and, and that's kind of what separates you know archaeologists from treasure hunters and and everything in between because once you pull that out of the ground if you haven't documented where you got it from and kind of do it cultural layer by layer and sometimes there can even be uh, very tiny organics or things that you could use scientific analysis to understand that once you have the object it might be you know the all everything you could actually glean from that might be gone mm. Um, which oftentimes, and in, in so much in Hawaii as well, you see these massive collections that the the provenance or like the story of where this object came from is just completely lost to time. Yeah, and it's hard to know. Like just uh, in two, I think it was two thousand nineteen. Uh, the CEO of Salesforce, uh, Benioff, he bought a, uh, a a tiki, a kii of a coup for seven point five million dollars on a Christie's auction. And, uh, you know, it was, like, maybe this big. But, like, after the fact, like, went on auction, he bought it. A lot of people are saying that's that's not even real. And because it was taken out of its context, because there's no provenance that goes back to where it was mm-hmm. actually found, there's no way. It's very hard to prove if it's authentic or not. Oh, that's nuts. I bought a fake tiki. <laughs> he <laughs> well, bought an $8 million fake tiki. Oh, wow. Well, experts were like, that is, like, that belongs in a tiki bar. That's not an actual. <laughs> Interesting. That's not cool. Like, or, I mean, it. It looks, and that's a, the tough thing about, you know, when you think about these, you know, hot button issues like cultural appropriation, things like that. And like, oh, is it appropriate to have, because Tiki were like, they're gods. Yeah. Mm. Um, but the thing that 
like always harkens back for me is like when you have so many imitation versions of the real thing that you can't tell what is the real thing, like that's the damage that, that this does. Mm, mm, like if, if somebody's buying a $7 million, yeah. like Tiki Bar Tiki and can't even know which, cause there are only three verified Ku Ki'i in existence. From, from like just back in the day. Yeah. That they can actually, there's one at the Bishop. There's one at the Peabody Essex museum. Um, and then there's one, and that one's in Massachusetts, and then there's one at the British Museum. And these ones are, like, authenticated, <clears throat> real ones. Basically, every other image of coup that, like, we've seen is is, is probably, like, a, you know, exoticized oh, yeah. tiki bar version. Oh, mental. I mean, the counterfeit market's kind of, like, huge now, right? Like, even in, like, <clears throat> like, even things that are easier to authenticate than that. Yeah. Right? Like, paintings, like, very famous paintings, even. Yeah. Where these things are becoming huge right now, like guys are getting so good at counterfeiting them. Yeah, the forgery, Wrong. the forgeries. It's and and that's the thing is like, well, the you know the art world is crazy, and the ancient art world is is really interesting. I mean, I find it fascinating just because everything that people have done in terms of just even like kind of tax fraud and being mm -hmm. able to sell ancient art because being able to appraise an art piece like this <coughs> single item that could be appraised everything from 10,000, you get somebody to say it's authentic, you know, multi-millions of dollars, yep. you donate it to a museum, that's a huge tax that's right, right off. off. Oh, wow. Well, that, I mean, guys just use it to, like, appreciate, too, as an asset, right? Yeah. It's, it tends to be a much more safe bet than holding cash mm. if you have something that's really authenticated. Okay. Yeah, so, you, I mean, guys, like, everybody's like, oh, you're rich, you collect art. No, they, they put it in the vault, and they hold it, yeah. like, like, bonds. Mm. You know, because they know in time it'll make money. And they can also borrow off it. Right? Wow. So you can take out a loan off that whatever appraised cost of this thing is and then pay back your loan and not pay any taxes. Mm. So there's, there's a whole bunch of ways. So they're not buying it because they're like, wow, I love this Van Gogh. Yeah. Like, not necessarily. Maybe some guys are. But mm. generally speaking, it's it's just a, a finance strategy. I see Keep those bottles. Yeah. yeah. No, I, and I have them. Trust yeah. me. <laughs> but what what ancient art is is there like what what would you consider ancient compared to so antique is what only a hundred years? Yeah. yeah. I mean it's it, it's it's hard because it totally depends on the cultural laws of the country that you're in. Mm, like um, I see. And so something to be considered even archaeological, like uh, I've done some uh, work in the Arctic and they have, um, you know, uh, RCMP, uh, Royal Canadian Mountain Police sp stuff that's only 50 years old and it's considered archaeological. Okay. And then next to it, you have a Thule Inuit site that's like, you know, 3,000 years old. And that's obviously, that, in my opinion, that would be ancient. Um, but most of the time when you think about the difference between sites or um, you, you have prehistory, pre so before the written word, so all the stuff that we were excavating um, in Siberia, or even the surveys that we were doing in Xinjiang, these were all cultures that didn't have the written word. They were written about by other cultures, um, but they so yeah. they had, but they had their own language stuff like that. But they just didn't have it documented. Yeah, and I think that that's like, I mean, you get into these conversations about um, ancient societies, ancient, and like some of these terms get super loaded, like civilization, for example, and like even still, like I was reading this book. Uh, Shoal of time about the history of Hawaii, and you hear about like civilized or uncivilized, yeah. but it's it, it kind of like it creates this hierarchy that I think is not useful 
for thinking about the past because some of these ancient cultures had amazing systems and way of organizing, for example, food production, something like that, like the ancient Hawaiians and the Ahupua'a was like incredible mm-hmm. in the way they were able to manage water systems. But like they didn't have written language per mm-hmm. se, yeah. or like even, for example, like the Inca had this uh, system of kipu, which were like basically tied knots that we don't fully understand because mm-hmm. it was like like across the colonized world. A lot of it was destroyed by missionaries. But these, for example, were like basically like a almost like a system of mathematics, I think, maybe to like count grain and to pass messages about like a um, like basically their their harvest. So that is that's super freaking sick. Well, the crazy thing is like how much stuff you just don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to know and you won't ever find out that, that or, you know, unless some new discoveries come. About, yeah, you won't find out. You know, and even even ones with full written languages and just no translation. Oh, right. Like there's tons that's... of there's tons of that, right? Yeah. If you check out like Rapa Nui, they have this entire language that has not been deciphered, which what? is incredible. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Rapa Nui or Easter Island, they have this whole basically hieroglyphics that is nobody still, knows. Yeah, yeah, and there's that's the exciting thing is like people think oh archaeology and history is so boring, but. Mm fascinating yeah in well, my opinion at least. well the crazy thing is like i feel like from an academic standpoint there was very much this established like this is it we figured it out and then as of recently wouldn't you say like so many things have come up where it challenges that like go back to Tepli, like all these different things what of, is like, that uh this this kind of like this this archaeological site that they found that predates when they thought people actually had like the tech to build the tech um this was like kind of showing that they weren't just, like, hunter-gatherer. They started farming. Oh, There's wow. All, they, they had tools. They had all kinds of things that kind of went against what was established as, like, the ac- academic precedent. I see. You know, like, they said, this is for sure when people were this. Yeah. And then now they're like, oh. oh. Right? Like, I mean, and there's all those, like, tunnels in Turkey. There's all these, like, like different bodies being found, right? Different skeletons. Uh. Right, different things that just like kind of really challenge what every like, you know, like when somebody's perceived super smart, they're like, no, 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 that's 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 absurd. Yeah. But now it's like, oh wait, there's lots of things coming up mm. and more coming up. I mean, we're listening to the permafrost stuff, oh. like like just different things about that, like like different things coming out of there. Whole animals, guy, yeah. preserved. Yeah. Well, whole yeah. animals that weren't supposed to be there. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and, that, and that's the interesting thing that, you know, if you'd asked somebody 10 years ago, they would have been, there's no possibility for this animal to exist in this there, place. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, maybe we're not as smart as we thought we were. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And that's the thing is like people, the way history is taught in schools, it's like this static thing. And it's like, oh, here's the book you got to memorize. Mm-hmm. These are the dates that you have to memorize. But it's a continuously evolving, you know, fabric of the human story, which, I mean, even in Hawaii, like you, I've been trying for years to, to track down, like, you know, basically first peopling of, of these islands. Like, you'll read dates that vary, like, almost five, 600 years. Like, you find some that are eight to 1100 um, AD, or you could find as early as 200 AD. And, I mean, that's, a, that's like, a pretty big difference. Yeah. Um, and then when, when you're talking about that one, is that, like, Tahitian type landing yeah so uh, the early ones uh from what i understand and one of the like the foremost academics on the early like populating of the, of the islands is uh patrick kirch and he he was saying that like 
potentially it was like from the Marquesas um, mm-hmm. that came earlier. And then there was this second wave um, later on in like 11, 1200s by Tetians. Yeah. Um, and then it also sort of changed the, the culture. There was also going back to that conversation about Hawaiian gods. And I'll, I'll, I will say I'm no, I am no expert myself. I'm mm-hmm. just somebody who loves the stuff and like loves mm-hmm. to nerd out about it. But yeah. uh, I'm by no means like an expert in Hawaiian history or archaeology, but uh, yeah, from what I understand, the, the culture did shift um, mm-hmm. after like Paola, I think it was, who who came over in, in the in the 1200s and and kind of brought in the war. Actually, the war god Ku became more prevalent. There were these sacrificial heiau, the Luakini, um, the state sort of sanctioned heiau that would that became much more uh, a part of the culture. Whoa! Right. Well, I mean, then you get into like because I don't know. Maybe this is just like my head, but. Like, then you get into, like, Menahuni, right? Like, mm. that whole, like, small like, mm. dwarf people. And maybe because, like, Kauai has so much more references in other places, mm. you know? Well, there's this one thought that Menahuni was actually a mistranslation from a missionary story that mm-hmm. they were also, they were saying Manahune, which meant, like, a lower, per- like, person. a lower caste, caste. person. Because they had uh, a caste system. Yeah, yeah. Wait, what? Wait. Um, well, what, what does that mean? Sorry. So that, like, basically in the in the 1800s, when missionaries were doing these ethnographies on traditional beliefs, that he had thought he had called them Menahuni as like a l- actual little people, yeah. um, but it was uh, Manahune, which meant like a lower caste of person. Yeah. Which we know that they mm-hmm. had a Konohiki and Kahuna oh, okay. caste, yeah. and, okay, and like a caste. tier, like yes. you're, oh, okay, okay, and bottom they, of the thing. Got you, got yeah, you. And there was actually even these census records in in, in North Shore of Kauai that as late as as the as the 1900s, there were people in the census that were that claimed that status. Yeah, yeah, that there was like not necessarily a smaller person, but they might have been from mm-hmm. that earlier migration of Marquesans that had a slightly different architectural style. Yep. And attributed to like the Alacoco fish pond, also Polihaleheao, supposedly a Menahune type construction. When you say they were on the census, you mean Manahune, not Menahune. Well, well, Menahune was on the census, but it's kind of one of those maybe it's a word that is like once it's established that this word, right, um, equates to these people, then I mean, it's all like language verbatim like i mean it's like going to the south and saying you know like a word and they're like no no it's like this and you're mm. like well who's right you yeah. know okay because time kind of it like embeds itself into like the culture mm. you okay. know and then these words be- mean something maybe that the little translation might not i uh, see yeah i mean i just think it's an interesting topic because like i mean the hawaiian thing is interesting to me is because in hawaii there's so many people who are like very like about Hawaii stuff, but I think it's so broad. Mm. I just think there's like so many different time periods, cultural things. Like, are you going to go with like more modern, like Kamehameha era stuff? Are you going to go Kapu system? Are you going to go like, and even then, like which island, which which chief, which which zone, which you know, like it, throughout history, it's 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 changed. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's changed by war, it's changed by treaties, it's changed by food systems, it's changed by a whole lot of things. Technology, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of stuff that, like, kind of dictate that. So that that's the thing with, like, Hawaiian stuff that gets me, that's so interesting to me, is, like, there isn't, like, this one 
Hawaii, Hawaiian thing. Yeah. There's like various levels and times. And like when somebody says Hawaiian, I'm like, oh, but like what year then? Mm-hmm. Or what area then? Or which king then? Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, even like for sure, like there's this whole like American um, taking over Hawaii thing. But then like in my head, then I'm like, well, did Kamehameha do that to Kauai? Uh-huh. Like in a sense, right? Come up, like... You know, they make a treaty and they say, well, yeah, don't attack us and we'll be like loyal to you or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, so I mean, it happens so often that I just want to know the truth. Yeah. Right. I just want to know really what happened. What like what are the things that like happened in parts of my family history that actually did versus what is popular only, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's really like curious to me. Yeah, because I think like in 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 history, people become these, like, you use historical figures to prove a point. Mm-hmm. Prove a point that's much more of, like, whether it's your modern viewpoint on yep. things going forward rather than understanding the past. And I think it's done all the time. But the better you know history, the more that you can understand how it repeats itself. Or they say, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. And mm. I just think, like, the more you dig, the more complex it is and the harder it is to, like, really, like make out these all these good guys and bad guys um but you can also trace things back to people did like oh this is the reason this is and i think at least for me it's like once you just start to know a little bit you start to see it everywhere like once you start to understand Mm -hmm. the context behind the place that's why i love like nerding out about this stuff so much it makes like every interaction every place that i get to visit every conversation that i have or person i meet and like so much richer because you have a couple little touch points and you can ask questions and people's experience with that and I've had so many amazing teachers like um like all these uncles all this like Ohana has like really just shared with me so much I appreciate it like uh Paleka Flores has been mm. amazing teacher doing the work days out at Hulei is amazing of course like the the project at Polyhale, mm-hmm. um which is you know based on like you know showing respect to a place but it, it makes it so much easier to show respect when you understand what it is so what well Polyhale is interesting in the work but what what is the work that you guys were set to do out there? You know what I mean specifically? Were you guys looking for something? Were you guys trying to prove something? Or yeah, so initially it was just the the Ohana had reached out to me and I started collaborating with uh, Kona Russell on just how to essentially just make a piece. Who is Kona Russell? The so he is one of the Kilano family members. He's kind of like stepped up and wanted people to recognize these. You know, basically the dunes are burial grounds, and which is. Yeah, let, could we get into that? Like, Jesse, from your understanding of spending time with the family and everybody, what is, like, the history of, like, Polihale? Because for me, Polihale was just where you went and had, like, ragers in uh-huh. high school, right? Like, or you went surfing, or you, like, went and, like, just, like, raced your friend on the beach. Like, like stupid things. Oh, I'm talking, yeah. like, guys would, I mean, this is, like, I'm sure it's not happening anymore, but if we're being honest, like, when I was in high school, a lot of the boys would be, you mean, running their trucks up up them dunes, you know what I mean? Um, but, yeah, so, so sorry, back, back back to what you were saying was, um, you you guys found that, that it was? No, no, so the, the Ohana has known, so they, the Kilano family are the lineal descendants to that area, and uh, I definitely don't want to, like, speak on their behalf in any ways, but the mm. basic facts of it is that they have a, a family burial ground that is there that they have been maintaining for generations, um, and they, you know, traditionally haven't made a big deal about it, also because, like, burial grounds, you don't want to, like, 
make a big fuss because you don't want to draw attention to it. Mm. So in the past, they didn't they didn't want to talk about it so much because it might get trashed because they were talking about it. Um, so it's kind of this catch twenty two. But in twenty twenty, when there was like a ton of people on the beach and mm. and there was just got really trashed, then they wanted to speak out. And DNLR ended up closing the park for a certain point of time. And I know there's a lot of people thought, oh, maybe there's something going on in terms of like. Oh, why was DNLR closing? It was there something fishy going on? But really, from what I understand, the Ohana really was trying to just protect the dunes, get it cleaned up correctly, and then also like the the lineal descendancy claims of all the Ohana is a way that they can make sure, for example, that area is never developed. So there's a a way of going through genealogy for Native Hawaiians that you can basically trace your your lineage back to a place. Um, so, for example, it's probably never happened, but if they wanted to build, like, a resort, say, out there, people who have a lineal descendancy claim to that area um, could stop that and can have input, even though it's a state park. And I think the more I started to try to... And, and the way that I approached it is, like, I wasn't, like, oh, I'm this, like, explorer, archaeologist kind of guy. Like, I want to go find something. Like, uh-huh. I just wanted to help support and then also like learn just because I was curious about that area and the more that I learned the more fascinated I was because it's just you know it's this state park that seems like an empty wilderness and it is this amazing beach to enjoy and I think like family members as well it's like everybody loves to enjoy that beach because it is you know west side it is like kind of like a safe haven from because like you can really only get there four by four by four so it's just like a different vibe than other places on the island they didn't want to like take that away from people but it is like traditionally it was a elena which is like a jumping off point for uhane which are the souls so basically in traditional hawaiian cosmology the souls would enter on a hola and leave Hale side so they would take off from the poly there the the jumping off point and yeah. enter back into po which i understand is like the the underworld in the in the ocean um Whoa. And even you look, the, there's certain archaeological house sites that were built uh, in that in that area uh, with a particular uh, direction of the of the uh, door, so the souls would pa- wouldn't get stuck in people's houses. So the souls would pass through the doors. Mm. And um, yeah, so the the and the in traditional Hawaiian culture, from what I understand, all arable land any land that could be used for agriculture was used for agriculture so they would they wouldn't bury people in where you could grow food so they would be buried in dunes so the makainana uh sort of common people would be buried in dunes and the elite would be buried in caves so you know i think most people know like caves are kapu and you know people are careful around caves and whatnot but uh i think less people probably know about the dunes um and even you talk to the shifty archaeologists who are like the people responsible the who shifty uh, State uh, Historic Preservation Division. Okay. Um, they're like they have they're kind of like the state archaeologists. Okay. Um, so they usually they treat any any bones, ev kapuna found in dunes as they don't like they don't carbon date them, they don't analyze them, they just automatically treat them as Native Hawaiian bones. Mm. Whereas if they're found elsewhere, they're probably later and could be European or other otherwise. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, it was about like protecting the, the the burial sites, and then even you know on the ecological side. Like I, I've been learning recently, there are certain plants that only grow on dunes at Polyhali. Like on certain dunes, there's like a species of bee that's like only lives there. And like whatever you think about protecting other species or not, like 
you know, it, it just seems like a shame to like be, you know, ripping through there and you could just destroy the habitat of mm. these endemic plants, which, you know, I'm sure, you know, preaching to the choir, but like there's so much invasive species on Kauai, the, the endemic plants just struggle so hard. Um, and then there's like the plants themselves are like beautiful whenever you get to encounter like a, uh, a native plant. It's, it's really cool. Interesting. I wonder where of all the th- places that you've been, where, where, where have you been? <laughs> you mean like, where is that, is that list too long to name? No, no. I mean, and I think like it's, I've, I've been lucky to do uh, different expeditions around the world. Like I'm heading off to an expedition next week in Panama this year, you know, 2022 is a big year. I was in Botswana, I- I- India, Indonesia, um, work on like basically following around different scientists or artists documenting their work or helping on the archaeology side as well. But I think for me, it's always been trying to get into depth. Like mm-hmm. I remember one time I was in college, I did a project with the guy in Venezuela and he turned out to be like the youngest America American to visit every single country. Oh. Um, but it was like checking boxes kind of, you it was know, like super quick. Like, it, was, it was just like, you know, we got there, like he didn't like, he didn't really speak Spanish. He was just yeah. there. And then, I mean, not to like throw shade or anything, but it was just, that's not my, that's not the reason I travel is to like, I, I like trying to get off the beaten path. And if I hear about a place or an opportunity and uh, honestly, actually living on Kauai and, and doing projects here is giving me a lot of like, it, it's, it's meaningful to me, right? Cause I feel kind of part of a community. You feel like accountable as well. I'm not just like parachuting in. It's like you're here and like people see you and like, you, you know, you kind of build a reputation for what you do. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I hope it's a good one. You can't always, you don't always know if what you're doing is right. And, um, you know, especially with like archaeology and like, like really like sensitive areas like Hayao's and stuff like mm. that. Like I was just try, you know, um, like a Peleke, for example, just like you said, you know, just always say like Kalamai or like, you know, ask, ask for forgiveness if you're doing something wrong, like whether you believe in, uh, you know, sort of these types of things or not, just always being respectful and mm-hmm. trying to make it a better place. Because I think, at least in my in my sense, it's like there's the archaeology side, which is like, you know, our human story, which, which yeah. is really fascinating. But then there's also like, you know, taking care of the place. Like, because Kauai is so beautiful. It gives so much to you. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you can't, everybody knows that. But like, what is a way that you can give back? And I've found that like some people are like, oh, you know, where's where's the spirit of aloha? And like, you know, what is that? It's like become so commercialized. What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. But I've found like, when you're giving, when you're giving back, even just a little, you get tenfold back in turn. Well, I'm not going to lie. Like meeting you, sometimes you get a little bit like shame. <laughs> you're like, shit. Oh, we've talked about this. Before. Yeah, yeah. We've been like, well, like we'll leave a meeting with you. And then we're like, did you know that about Prince Kuyo? Yeah. No, like, no, exactly. No. We've said that. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, frick. Yeah. Like you're like, oh, I better like learn more. Well, you're, you're just very excited and enthusiastic and seek out, like, really, like, what the truth is, you know, about an area with the right people. Yeah. And then you're able to also, like, kind of take all the knowledge and and line it up really well and then explain it really well, too. Oh, man. You know? Thanks, thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. No, no, but... And you, and you come up in a very, like, respectful way. Yeah. So I'm not going to lie. The first time we met you... <laughs> I was like, oh, dude, this guy's a hippie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> and then I was like, but then we talked, right? And I was like, oh, okay. You know, and like, 
like obviously in Hawaii, like the idea of like transplants or howies or whatever, like is a hot button topic, right? Mm. But I, like I said, I feel guilty in a lot of ways <laughs> or shame. Yeah. Where like you come in and then you dive head first into trying to find out what the truth is about stuff. And then you tell me something that like having lived here as long as I have or growing up here that I didn't know. And then I'm like, probably shouldn't knew that. Yeah. Like, huh. But it's because I'm not diving head first in constantly. I'm not seeking it out. I'm not saying who's like the, you know, and it, and it is a little bit, there's a little bit of conviction there and even like, Oh, you know, and even with this podcast, we've talked about like, Oh, we want to do like once a month, like, bring like someone whoever's an expert in this one small topic or 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 thing and just have like a a conversation to a for me to learn you know but b that hopefully it puts the info out there so more people can know yeah whether it's you curator you know for Kauai museum but just have these conversations about history that we're 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 really interested we're interested it's just we're not doing what you do you know, well, that you're, you're, you're living like real lives with real jobs and like, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, you've come and you've like, and been like very like respectful about it. Not like a matter of fact. And even when like really heated topics on the Island come up, you really do try to look for like, Oh, let me go talk to all the different like mm-hmm. reference points on both sides and figure out like what is really going on, you know? So, I mean, I like that. I like the, like, the seeking of truth, right? The seeking of, like, okay, not to take your emotion out of it and your, like, personal allegiance out of it and just, like, oh, what really is happening? And that's kind of, like, hopefully the angle I try to always take. But, but it is refreshing that it isn't, like, you walk in and then you try to, like, go and, like, culturally virtue signal to get, like, accepted. Yeah, you I mean, and I mean? that's, like, that's, it's such yeah. interesting because it's, like, the, the, the virtue signaling to, like, get your you know, get your pass or whatever and to like check the box. Mm-hmm. It's like a such that was never. Yeah. I always wanted to be conscientious not to like be that way. And there's such a long history of like how the guys doing that, you know, to like get they, their name out. Or What's interesting is like you don't even freaking link your, your, you mean your, your name like attached to these projects. Yet every time we, we meet up again and have lunch, guy, you're off to freaking, you know what I mean? Who knows where? What did you say? Bot- where, where are you going next? Uh, next week, Panama. Be right? Panama. Yeah. Panama? Yeah. Guy. Yeah, the work just speaks for itself, I feel like. But, yeah, like Brown was saying, you do it in such a way where it's like you learn, you package, and you you mean you you teach and deliver it to us in, in such a such a, a, a interesting and respectful way. It's sick. But I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I had to, like, that's, like, a good uh, confidence boost. This morning, I, I did this project with CNN, uh, in the fall and uh, I made the mistake because they just they posted it like one like on you know it's an ad on from CNN and Destination Canada mm-hmm. <laughs> I made the mistake of reading the comments and this people were like, oh guy no yeah this guy was like I was like you know he thinks he's Anthony Bourdain like that's I would slap him this guy <laughs> say he's a cultural advocate <laughs> what does that even mean I was like oh God, I gotta gotta not look at this but, no for real and I felt bad because it was su- it was a such an amazing project for me it was another one of these is um uh, an elder from the Anishinaabe people um in, in Ontario uh, Chuck Commandis amazing guy taught me how to make birch bark canoes and I got to paddle oh. in a traditional canoe with him and super amazing and just totally like me li- like I don't know much about birch bark canoes or 
Anishinaabe stuff at all, but just well, where's that from? Like what, what pe- the people? Like Ontario. The, so yeah, Ontario. so it's like oh, okay, the, yeah. the Great Lakes area. Um, and if you look at the landscape, I mean, this is another way of like indigenous technology. It was just just the way to like get across this landscape in the most efficient way possible. Um, cause you look, it's just like, you wouldn't be able to get across, you know, you can't Hawaii. build roads. So it's just lakes everywhere. Oh, it's just lakes? Lakes and rivers, lakes and rivers. Is it rough, the water? Uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes you get rivers that like with enough current and you think about trying to build roads through that. And it's just are like, the, la- are the, it. are the lakes though? I mean, it's a lake. Nah, but lakes are big, dude. Well, yeah, okay. I mean, in that, in that area, you, you do have, yeah. like, Lake Superior, Lake Huron, um, and, and all of these. Uh, well, and what, there's, like, waves in them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes, I guess. I mean, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know the area all that well, but in, in terms of, like, what you could make, like, like Chuck can basically harvest and make, a, like, a water-worthy vessel, all from just, just nature. And he can, I mean, obviously it's a ton of work, but he can do it in the traditional way. And it was just incredible to see him in action. Yeah. Um, the one funny part was like to, to seal it, you use the, the pitch, like basically like tree sap and he heated it up in this like little cauldron. And he was like, used a stick to put it on. It was my job to kind of like seal the pitch, but you use spit so you don't get third degree burns and get your skin stuck to the like, heavy <laughs> skin stuck to the canoe. But when we got in the water, this thing blue like i had been the whole the whole week i'd been paddling in like fiberglass canoes and stuff which are like you know obviously modern technology this one was just like just glide you feel like you're floating on the water heavy i I paddled back in high school and let me tell you i was seat five (laughs) which team b B team (laughs) so i I think from what i remember is seat five is kind of just like it's the like last sky pick yeah 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 like not even that it's like the last and and this is no shade to the to the fifth seat guy because you got to be there i'm just saying um there's like the dodgeball team you line up and then like oh shoot it's like harry's sick he's not here let's pick xavier but on the second team you're mad you're mad athletic in high school though you're playing football you're like from the pico up wasn't fast fast could jump the knees the knees don't forget about the knees no ain't nobody forgetting about the knees got the bees knees <laughs> but yeah um so that that's true what is it a two man a, what how many yeah people this could... one it, but it was crazy that what i learned is that they would load them up so it had a lot of the history of um um like the fur trade in that area so they'd load these canoes up with thousands and thousands of pounds and um be able they would have big like various lengths this one i think was a 10 or 11 foot canoe did they have an alma on it like an arm or was it just um, no, and yeah. it just flowed. It didn't. Yeah, it was just, and I was so nervous because it was like, it was Tip this. It over. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was like, for real. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just like, and it's all wood. All like. How wide is it? Because I'm, guy. In pretty a, wide. Per, yeah. Because, yeah. bro, canoeing up freaking Wailua <laughs> River, I'm like, whoa, am I going to fall off? And we know get anacondas over there. You know what I mean? <laughs> Frick, uh, I know the fork. <laughs> which, I mean, the Y. They call it the, the serpent's tongue. Yeah, exactly. Conda, yeah. conda, um. On the turn is what they call it. It's so it's so beautiful back there, and there's so much history. I mean, even just in that Wailua area, and that like one, for example, like one beach that a lot of people skip is like Lydgate Beach. Mm. But you go and you actually read; they actually have quite good information yeah, there because that's where the city of refuge was. Yeah, the Pu'o Honua, like the they had this incredible and like many heyao. Of course, that was like Wailua was you know that was Kamuali was born at the that's kind of the main there. little civilization here. 
mental. Apparently, my 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 hunter cousin said that the hay out down at the shoreline to the one up, I guess towards Waialeale, mm-hmm. they're all lined up pretty. Mm-hmm. How 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 would anyone know? I have no idea. I have no idea. But that's that's what was said. So I just know there's choke hay owls up there. I mean, yeah, they say the same thing about Waimea, right? Waimea, like um, that the hay owls like from deep the valley to the shoreline. Yeah. That's crazy, see? Well, they're all like, I mean, they're almost like old school, like, signaling, right? Like, yeah. like kind of like how the Great Wall of China is. Mm. Like, if something happens, it's like from one turret to another. Oh. The signals go and, like, it sends the message. I see. So everybody can know. Yeah, instead of ins- instead of Z running down to the shoreline from, can you imagine, Kokee? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the whole village is gone by the time I get down halfway. But yeah, I mean, we're stoked, like, because we learn a lot. That's the thing is, like, oh, uh, he's coming. Like, let's, what's he gonna tell us today? Yeah, no, for real. I oh, mean, you yeah. just know so much. Well, well, and you feel you do a lot at um, uh, Prince Kuhio. What is that park? Yeah, Prince Kuhio Park. Uh, well, I just sort of have volunteered, and I've done a little projects here and there, helped redo the website. That's at um, uh, Royal Order of Kamehameha. Um, so the Kamu Elite chapter has a group of. Uh, amazing, amazing uncles who do cleanups there, and then they have community days. Um, and it's there. There's also like a nonprofit called Nakau Hawaii. So Hawaii is the is that bay, um, a really little bay. It's like kind of before Lawai Beach and all yeah. that. Okay. What the ha- real rocky core? Yeah, just, just right across the street, right? Oh, and, uh, yeah. Hawaii means actually bringing bringing food. So that's like a really plentiful plentiful uh a bay for fishing first of all because actually underneath the road there's still um like a little makaha like a like a gate that goes into the little fish pond there yeah and it wasn't like a full fish pond but they would like keep fishing it almost like a like ice box um uh, wait, under the road no yeah. so have you been on that side there's like a little pond never did there's a pond thing in there in the on the malka side yeah not d- the- just think of it as like a tide pool where you hold your fish so like they last longer I know, but I'm just thinking under the road. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Like under a the road channel. Yeah. Like, there's like a little channel that connects the the bay to, to the fish ponds, and that's salt water in there. Then, yeah, crazy. Yeah, and it's like those are like Uncle Scotty. I've learned so much from him, so much from him. Uh, Chadley Shimofenig, uh, Uncle Kimo. Like, I would just go and and you know we we're mostly just like cutting up cactus and kiabe trying to clear it from the area because there's the really maintained area in the front mm-hmm. but then Park. but then to the right if you're looking Malkaya, yeah there's all. a whole agricultural system that was pretty messed up by it from like um the plantation days but there's still one intact piece of the the alvi which is like basically above ground aqueduct which made that whole area so agriculturally productive because they would bring not just water but like soil sediment and nutrients because that that whole area was like kind of rocky volcanic. Yeah, yeah. So they basically like the the technology they used was creating topsoil from the alvi. They would bring all of this sediment and then be able to like basically create a fertile topsoil to that area. And that's, I mean, all around the island they had they had alvi like that. They were making so much food, and that's actually why Kamehameha wanted to come mm-hmm. conquer Kauai because oh. it was like the breadbasket. Oh it was wow, such a productive. So how would they make something like that? Just just divert water and then have it have that bring it there, right? Yeah. So it's like the the alvai like they would divert it from from rivers in the area, from okay. what I understand. And then there's different types of alvai. There are ones that are 
um, that can flow. And then there's ones that are just kind of moving water in the grade. It depends because they're at like a 2% grade. I was just learning this actually from Paleke um, because he was talking about some of the alvai that they have out at Huleia. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like when you think about, you know, the great civilizations, you think about the Romans had aqueducts mm-hmm. and all this, but like Hawaiians had too. Wow. That is sick. But uh, yeah, I mean, Prince Kohio's stories are incredible. That's why it's like, because like, I also think like as a filmmaker, all these stories are so visual and they have such incredible characters. And like, that's why like when we first started talking and I saw, saw your videos, I was just like, man, like somebody's got to write a script for Xavier. Like, mm. for anything to, like for him to really like, you know, because you can embody all these different types of characters, but then you're like, I don't know, your presence, I could just see you, you know, acting out piece of history too. That would be sick. That would be sick. And we did have a script. Yeah. You mean, but that was not what you're talking about, but we had, different. yeah, a little bit different, but, um, no, that's exciting. And I, and I hope we get there, you know, I, that would be super fun, bro. Little by little. I think like, you know, there's so many people working on different types of content on Kauai, but it's mm-hmm. like, it seems like there's a lot of momentum, especially now to push it kind of to the next level. We're all trying to like level up in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just like seeing what you guys are doing gives me so much more like motivation to do it too. Mm-hmm. Sick, bro. Yeah, no. Bro, I, I, I just, the, tr- the seeking out treasure for me is just what you do is, is something, is something so interesting guy. Um, this might be like an amateur question, but this is a personal question. Mm-hmm. What is the craziest thing that you, that you found? You mean, what is the most interesting thing that you found? Mm. Not oldest, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think like, I mean, it's kind of, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit dark, but I think, uh, when we were excavating this, this burial mound in, in Southern Siberia, um, you know, there's all these kind of like, you know, regulations and kind of protocol that you have to go through um, uh, before you kind of dig into the main part of the burial mountain. Because like going into the middle is where the central burial chamber, that's usually where the, like the chieftain would be with a bunch of sacrificed horses. And, you know, there was a, a tomb just down the valley that had over 50 pounds of gold, you know, this oh. massive, this massive torque, which is like this like gold necklace that they thought the chieftain probably... He probably wore it from when he was a teenager because it wouldn't have fit over his mm. head. Oh, interesting. Um, and so oh. it was all worn on the inside. And it was just like one of the most incredible. And I got to interview that archaeologist, Konstantin Chuganov, who found that gold. Um, what? Not to cut you off. This is, this is like a yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what, what happens when that, when that happened? What discovery, discovery so, like that happens? So, yeah. So they found, this was uh, Arjan II, which was probably, it was the richest Scythians. Scythians were these horseback warrior nomads and that, that were very prevalent in the steppes. And Scythians. During the, during the Iron Age. And, uh, you know, they're kind of like the, the template for the Dothraki in Game of Thrones. If like a oh. pop culture shorthand. Yeah. They use a lot of like same belt buckles with like, but they had these like very, very iconic, you can tell their brills that like iconic animal style art, like twisted animals. Okay. And um, yeah, so that, uh, that burial mound was actually heavily looted. So the center had already been like poked into big old, big old hole um, in the middle where, where grave robbers had tried to loot it. But for whatever reason, this grave was different than, you know, 95% of the other tombs. And the, the main burial chamber was off-center. 
So maybe they thought they'd put like almost like a decoy. Whoa. So when the archaeologists were clearing it, they go down and they see this like unlooted chamber going down. And then it was like, you know, maybe 30 feet down. Oh, that's a... Yeah, it was wait, wait, deep. But, but you're saying the mound top is 30 feet. Yeah, and, and it was deep, deep. So they had ladders and ladders going down. And then the, the actual burial chamber almost looks like a log cabin. So they'd use larch wood. And in some cases in, in Scythian burial mounds the larch would help preserve the bodies. And this is rare. This is like higher altitude uh, burial mounds. Mm-hmm. You even have like ice mummies with preserved tattoos. Oh, and uh, that yeah. was our goal. That's what we really wanted to find. Um, we didn't have quite such good uh, preservation as that. And, but but in, th- in this case, they, they went in and they found the, not only did the chief have this, this, this torque, but he also had these uh, gold beaded pants. So these like tiny, he had so like, Gold beads, all, like, his entire pants were made out of them. This obviously wasn't something he'd be wearing every day because it'd be super heavy. Yeah. Um, but I got to hold some of these tiny beads, and they're, they're incredible to behold. And another instance where people thought, oh, these, you know, rough barbarians, like, how they could they have their own gold work? They must have stolen it from somebody else. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely, definitely from their own artisans. And they're nomadic. Yeah, and they're nomadic. They thought, huh. oh, why, like, how could, if, if, how could you have... Uh, you know, the time if you're moving around and horseback and all this stuff. But really, when you compare it to an agricultural lifestyle where you're tilling fields for eight hours a day, <laughs> actually, if you're, you know, if you have your horses, they would have like bands of like thousand horses. You have your, all of your food, That's your clothing, everything right there. You can actually have a lot of time to make art, do other things um, besides, you know, if you're not building cities, you're not. That's, yeah. I guess, that is crazy. But in, in our in our site, what um, what we found that was just like kind of fascinating for me and a little bit like a little bit disturbing though is that we started finding a lot of violence. Like we started pulling out these like you know vertebrae that had like an arrowhead straight through it. What? So I was just photographing like a skull that had like a puncture right in the head, shot with an arrow. Like we had some of these like it's a lot of decapitations, and actually Holy. we looked at some of the statistics and. It was one of the most violent archaeological sites ever found. So, like, 27% of the... Because we pulled o- out over 100 skeletons, um, and I was, you know, documenting, photographing, you know, cleaning these burials. And one of them we found was actually, um, like, an adult, like, holding a child. Like, and they were buried together, and they were just riddled with riddled with arrowheads all through them. Smashed skull, but, like, kind of in this, like, very touching embrace... Like, they had been buried together. And uh, that's when, like, you're kind of, like, both, like, a mixture of, like, excited but also disturbed. And then it's just so often it's, like, something that, that that's that old, like, 2,000 years old. The, whole, the, the main structure of the tomb is actually even older. But these burials are 2,000 years old. Like, you just feel, like, transported back in time. Oh, and you feel that moment, like, and you're just kind of, like, you get this, like, you know you how fragile human life is but then these like these just little vestiges that we leave and like how you can tap into that and of course it's you know we before we did the dig we were blessed by these siberian shamans which was like a whole trip in itself and it was this whole ceremony that lasted hours where i mean one of and we did multiple of them throughout the you kind of like ask the ancestors permission to dig and one of them one of the shamans, and they have these crazy costumes where they have, like, basically, like, strings and things hanging over their face. And one of them had, like, a like a whole taxidermy bird 
helmet Whoa. thing and like these big bear claws and like big robe and he was going around he just whipped all of us with like a horse whip we had no idea what was going on like i speak a little russian but he was speaking what do you mean what do you mean he whipped you he whipped every single every single person nobody got spared even the old babushkas in the <laughs> no there. yeah but, they all but got whipped. it was part of the ceremony it was part of the like, wow yeah so it was um it was a it was an intense one and um yeah some memories i'll never forget and when you get in you know when you feel like you're part of like writing history mm-hmm. um you know i had some p- p- photos published in national geographic which was, that was like a big first for me and it was really wow. cool but i think more so just being part of like you know rewriting that one little piece of history and the people that were there and you know it it, it usually raises more questions than answers yeah because that was not what we were expecting to find it was basically an entire secondary burial ground around the perimeter of the main mound um so the main mound wasn't as much violence we haven't it, it's only 25 percent done or maybe a little bit more maybe 30 but yeah after the pandemic couldn't go back and oh because of the war now it's uh oh yeah but see i always forget because my- it, it is like a lot of questions right yeah like I mean, why why all these? Is it like sacrifices? Is it like you know? Seriously, yeah. I mean, and that's interesting. Like that's what's the 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 science of archaeology is fascinating. And got to work and interview this. Uh, like, there's so many tiny little niches within the field of archaeology. There's a person called a traceologist who analyzes the cuts in the bones to see if they were done while the person was alive or long after they were dead. And they, uh, they analyze them under a microscope and the way the collagen in the bones is preserved and like the way that you can actually look at it, you can, you can roughly say whether it was probably like they were alive or just dead or long after they were dead. Uh, so you can start to paint, using the science, you can start to paint the picture of, you know, what actually happened there. Like you're basically playing detective in an ancient murder scene. Crazy. Which, of course, like in Hawaii, like with everything around Evie Kapuna, you can't do the same thing as that, which was like, you know, obviously transitioning from Russia where it's like, oh, like what archaeological stuff have you done? It was like, oh yeah, I took all these pictures of bones. It's like, not, yeah. <laughs> not the thing. Yeah. But um, I still think there's, there's, there's so much to uncover here as well. Um, it's harder because like inside, the reason we have even bones that are so well preserved 2000 years later is there is permafrost in that area. Whereas in, in Polynesia, it's, Stuff goes away. So yeah. When away. you say permafrost, you just mean like a layer of ice over the ground. So it depends. Like and the soil's frozen. Oh, and so, okay. Yeah, okay. the soil is is rock hard, and you don't have it. We had like kind of patches throughout the area, and it, but it makes it really difficult because, like, when you imagine, like, you know, uh, archaeologists is a very basic. You know, they're probably maybe the archaeologists watching it like that's not how it is, but you have these cultural layers, right? So if a, a really clean thing is like you go down one layer and you have one time period, another layer is another time period, and it's usually not that simple. But the crazy thing about permafrost is when it will sometimes thaw a little bit and, and freeze again, it'll make the cultural layers into waves, mm. into this action. It's called soliflexion, which is basically like making it really difficult to discern the different cultural layers. So we were, we were digging out there, and basically in the only months warm enough in the summer in siberia where you know there's tons of mosquitoes water was like coming up from below and we're trying to like parse out what the cultural layers were but it was really difficult i see 
This is amazing. <laughs> There's just like fascination with like the last, the last of a people, like the last of a culture. Like there's even a, there was like a, a movie. It's not, not the best movie. There's one called the last Scythian. You mm. have these, and it was like a Russian movie. But, uh, it was pretty inaccurate, but then you have like last of the Mohicans. You have yeah. all of these things about cultural loss. And I think with like globalization and mass culture, it's mm-hmm. something that like we're experiencing now. And even just learning a little about Hawaiian history, what always struck me is like, how resilient Hawaiian people have been, even just against the statistics of like disease. When you think about, oh, that whole theory of like guns, germs, and steel, well, you know, like Kamehameha pretty quickly got on the gun train. Like he was like equipping his mm-hmm. uh, with like cannons like pretty fast. And, uh, but it was really the germ factor. I think it was like yeah. 80, 90% just survive. It was just like smallpox, yeah. tuberculosis, venereal disease, like all this stuff. It's like biological warfare that almost, I mean, that's why I like, I see it as like a, to the story of humanity, these like precious cultural resources mm-hmm. that keep it diverse and keep it like, you know, part of something that's not just all one monoculture. Yeah. Um, no, very similar, like agriculture, right? That's why you have yeah. seeds buried in, uh, you know, icebergs. Poof, like that facility in though. case like they need diversified Bruh, agriculture i'm talking corn all types of corn <laughs> yeah. they got <laughs> yeah they spraying them too yeah they spraying them <laughs> <laughs> right here on this island i tripped on my mind yeah that's actually a documentary project um well i don't know have you guys seen cane fire yet you uh, were we, the one we haven't seen it I yeah no seen it. I, I would check it if you if, if you can now i think it's available on criterion channel um, and this, uh, which is like a, one of the online, one of those million online streamers. But yeah, Anthony uh, Benua Simon, super talented uh, filmmaker. And yeah, there's a lot of interesting docs, documentary films about like agriculture, GMO stuff on Kauai. But I mm-hmm. think there's actually, there's more to uncover there as well. Interesting. No, who, who else is saying we should watch Cane Fire? Was it Zane? I'm not sure. But you aren't the first, I don't think. So, it just it. hits on so many different aspects of of Kauai and so many different elements. I mean, it's got the whole cocoa palms thing and what's going on there, but it's also got like the whole history of plantation era and like. Mm. I think a lot of times people would say, "Oh, is it like anti plantation era?" But it's really not. It has all this nuance and how like the a lot of these like unions that came together to protect the workers and and not that like. The life, you know, plantation life was obviously really tough. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, and I think they talk a little bit about the Hanapepe massacre oh. that happened. Um, I mean, when I used to go digging for bottles, I'd find little opium bottles. Like if you, you would hit a, 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 like a cache of just mini opium bottles. I'm like, what do they oh. look like? They're hand blown. They're super small. So um, they come in all different uh, shapes. Some like um, cylinder, square. Um, some more like oval, you know what I mean? And they're, they're about that tall. Mm-hmm. But some of the rare ones have like um, writing on them, like emboss on the bottom. Interesting. They, w- what's your, f- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, they, the, um, the tops were um, sealed and then you would just crack, which is crazy, but you would have to break off the top. So, so all the ones mm. that you find are all sheared. Mm. Yeah. Well, that just made me think of like, what's your favorite thing that you've ever found in your treasure hunting? Favorite? would probably have to be the first bottle I ever found because um, we were up Kapahi. So, like, I don't know, like, 
four minutes from where I grew up. And we were scooping guppies out of this little river. Um, and then there was a bunch of bottles sticking out, you know, and we kept, they almost kept kind of getting in the way. Like, you, you know, like when you're trying to scoop and it would just like, the, the tops of them would be hitting your, um, the handle of the scoop net. But I ended up digging some out. And then the first one I found was a Lihui Ice Company bottle, like a hand, uh, a blown blob top. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. It says Lihui Ice Cool. Brought it to my uncle um, who works with this guy named Bert Marita who wrote a book about Kauai bottles specifically. Um, and he was tripping out. He's like, bro, where did your nephew find this? Like, you guys got to go back. You got to find, you mean, dig them up. Um, long story short, the the owner of the house gave us permission to to dig a little bit. Brah, we had dig. Trust me. So we, we were digging in his in the bank, and then we ended up finding all these things. I ended up finding a one-of-one one, um, mint bottle that my uncle ended up buying from me. Um, but but the reason that's my favorite is because it, it just, that was the start of this whole, like, you know, like, treasure hunting, digging up stuff for maybe six, seven years. Um, but then the craziest thing I ever found was, like, when Coral sculpted head in the mountains um also also near my house but that and i still have that thing that's pretty that's pretty nuts yeah i'm wondering if it's coral if it could be dated like if it's still you could see how old it was pretty, would you well it's tricky yeah i mean because coral is a way that they use to date a lot of sites because sometimes in rock walls they would do little coral deposits mm. um um there's this lady who owned an antique shop in the Hanamaulu post office before it burnt down. Mm. Then they rebuilt it, but then it's still in there. Wakina Antiques. And she deals with a lot of like um, rocks and stuff like that. Mm. But I brought it to her because, you know, she tried. We tried to do the whole like napkin magnet over the thing to see if there was like any mm-hmm. metal. Yeah. There was nothing. So I've been, yeah, I've been, I haven't dug deeper into it could be ancient yeah it'd be interesting it's always good to like cross-reference like the context of the area and like of course it's like if you, you know you do if you find something you think really might be old it's always good to like maybe tell an archaeologist and maybe leave it in place mm. not, to, not to be a narc or anything but <clears throat> no that thing's at my house <laughs> <laughs> what we did put back was in ulumaika though oh yeah yeah my uncle um well my uncle found it and then he ended up just leaving put, putting it back you know, but that was on a separate how I don't know, like if if you think of like the hillside, mine was here and the bottles we were finding was like from the 60s. But mm. but you, you but I wouldn't say that that thing's from the 60s, you know, yeah. and then but his Ulumaika was a little farther down. So it'd be interesting to cross reference if any there were like surveys of that area, if there is a site or like, yeah, what level, mm. what cultural layer were they in or if it was near like you know, a river that could have been pushing up some of those bottles or, yeah, mm. what kind of terrain was it? Just oh, this is, this is different. So, um, there was no, there's no river around here. Mm. It was all my great, cause I asked my grandma if she, my great grandma, if she remembered any places that, you know, had old houses and stuff in. Um, it's just, there were old houses on this, I guess you say like on this hillside mm. on the top of it. And then the back is like a gulch that just goes, it just goes into a valley mm. And then it flattens out, and there's more houses here. So, mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes it's hard with those places that erode because it gets like all mixed together. So exactly, it's like hard to tell. Well, there's that, an, and they usually just throw their trash down the hill, right? Yeah, they like would that, just that's the thing. Bulldoze and push it over. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So there's an unmarked Japanese, there's an unmarked like Japanese graveyard uh, mm. around the area. So that whole, that whole hillside um, by Kulana up, up Kapahi is like, there was all kinds of stuff up there. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. I think it's like, yeah, getting back to that, like contexting, it reminds me of another in that burial ground where we were finding all of the like battle wounds and stuff. Another thing that we found that was really interesting was, uh, we found it in one burial where there was a skull and like it was a young woman and she had like there. Well, first we found gold, um, mm. which was always, you know, like, oh, gold, but it's like, you know, it's not, it's not actually like a massive amount of gold. Like it's not it's valuable in itself, but we started finding these like kind of little appliques, which would have been like probably for like a, like a sort of like a chest piece or something like that. There are like okay. a bunch of them. So they were all would have all been attached. Mm. And then, Around her, like in her jaw, there was this twisted piece of gold across across there. And then later on, like a month later, we found another skull with another one of these twisted pieces of metal, like right around that face area. It was like a little bit, Burley was a little bit disturbed, but then there was like another one that was found. And what was cool about it is like, if you had just seen this gold coil, it would have been like, what? I mean, like, you know, it's cool, it's a piece of gold, but like, because we found them all in the similar area around these skulls, it started to create like a typology of like, this had some meaning to it. And maybe because they were horseback warrior people, maybe it was almost like a, like a, like a bridal, like it maybe symbolized a bridal, but for like a human. Oh, I was thinking braces, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That's <laughs> Invisalign. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, Oh wow. Okay. They really wanted that teeth straight. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but you're Wow. But coil was it straight? I mean, it was twisted, and it was like kind of had like um, the gold was kind of bent on on either end of it, mm. and then it was like a twisted piece of gold that was like kind of placed between their whoa jaw. Imagine that's the last thing you see before an arrow just goes straight to you. Know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they're violent, but oh, big time. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know they were violent. Yeah, yeah, and it's the, like we're still still like piecing together what it was. Um, this this Coquel culture, which is after the Scythians, there was a lot of upheavals in the area and a lot of like different bands of nomads that were fighting against each other. And they thought maybe this was like a burial ground specifically for like basically people who were killed in, in battle. Mm -hmm. um, and most of the time these were like big machete chopping type swords that were being used in this alongside because it, you know, it's rare when you find, like, actual violence on the bones themselves because there's so many ways you can, like, basically take somebody out without yeah. even leaving any evidence on their bones. Mm. Like, you kind of have to go crazy oh, to, like, that leave cuts on the bones. Yeah. Uh, and we found plenty. Um, Whoa. Like, these radiating fractures off the skulls. And, you know, and I interviewed at length and worked with the physical anthropologist who, you know, they have crazy lives. Like, these guys are, like you know, dealing a lot with human remains and sometimes they're working on ancient sites and sometimes they're tapped by the local police department to like analyze how a, you know, mm. how a body was taken out. But it was a uh, really interesting, <laughs> I was talking um, to Marco, the, the anthropologist I was like, you know, does this like kind of freak you out? And he's like, nah, man, like, like living people, those are the ones you should be scared of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for real. Dead though. ones, nah, it's fine. Yeah, no, living people freak me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, yeah. Like that whole side of the world is like relatively unknown to us growing up here, you know, or even in America, you know. Like, and it's such a big area in the world. Like, 
It's super crazy. Was that Asia or like? I mean, especially like China, Russia. That zone. It's, I mm. mean, China itself is just huge, right? And the, like the amount of different landscapes they have, and histories, and tribes, and like cultures, mm-hmm. right? Like, like I said, like we think of it as China, but historically it was a bunch of different cultures. Yeah, you know, kind of in a zone, and even. When you go to China today, geographically, like people look different. Mm. You know, it's not like oh, everybody looks like people in Shanghai. You go like way west, or you go up north. There's all different like, like physical traits. And then you had this big like Russian like Orthodox movement going to Russia at some point, where it brought in a lot of like the more Christian white people, and that like shifted that whole northern area. Mm. And all the stands and all that kind of stuff. So, like, historically, like, there's so much going on, you know, because there's so much more time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, we think of America, and America's like, oh, yeah, 1770. And, like, those guys are, like, deep at that point. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of interesting Russian stuff coming up in Kauai's history as well. Because, like, like you were saying, like, it was interesting, like, going way back in the conversation about Kamehameha and, like, Kamuali'i at the time, like, he was the last island, mm-hmm. you know, he had, um, Kamehameha had already defeated Kahikili, and, like, you know, he had, had like, long battles against all the other islands, like, a lot of bloodshed. Yeah. Kamuali'i was all about, like, trying to, like, I'd rather not that happen, and his first, you know, uh, all the war canoes he tried to bring over, I think it was 1796, that all got swept away in a big storm, mm-hmm. and then he tried to come again in 1804, Kamehameha, they all got, I think, cholera, mm-hmm. and there was, like, big disease that kept them from coming. But during that time, that's when Kamuali'i was kind of courting the the Russians because he thought, actually, an alliance with the Russians could keep Kamehameha away. And um, oh. he was kind of playing a game. It was a total Game of Thrones. It's such a fascinating part of history and such a fascinating part of Kauai's history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing. Like, it was so different and segregated. And there is so much going on. It's so complex, right? And that's why, like, so often it gets so simplified <coughs> that I'm like, I don't know. Like, I think there's more to it, you know? And Always even even within it. Kauai, like, different areas, you know? So it wasn't, like, so cohesive as everybody was best friends. Mm. And these characters, man, like, in the worlds they lived in, it's just, like, so crazy. Like, there's this one guy, actually prominent... Howley guy, but within the Hawaiian kingdom government named uh, Walter Gibson. And he was like the original, like Howley guy trying to get in with like Hawaiians. And he was like a precursor. And it's so weird how this stuff repeats. Cause he <clears throat> was like on, um, he was basically trying to be, make his own, uh, kingdom on Lanai. He okay. almost sounds like, like Larry else. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it seems like the same stuff. Over and over again, he had his whole, like, plantation era there, and he... On and I. On and I. Okay. And then he was, like, buying up land, and he was just, like, one of these kind of shyster dudes, and, like, you know, complicated for sure, but, like, you know, he um, he built this, you know, basically his, like, little kingdom there in this sphere of influence, and, you know, he was able to buy a couple, like, Hawaiian language... Um, uh, newspapers to really influence what was going on in the Hawaiian kingdom and the, the Hawaiian kingdom for like, for what it lasted, it was such a complex and like all the different Kamehameha dynasties and mm-hmm. how it shifted from Kamehameha four King lot and like mm-hmm. all that <laughs> happened there. Bless you. Mahalo. Um, I mean, even when you get into like the economics of it, it's super interesting. Oh, big time. 
So I mean, th that that's the kind of things that like like there's so much complexity, like even just like the va the amount of money that the Hawaiian Kingdom had at different times and how it affected its foreign relations and even up to the overthrow. Yeah, you know, and that and that's kind of interesting. Like there's so much stuff, and like even between monarchs who liked who, who didn't like who for whatever reasons, you know what I mean? It get, it's just so, like you said, like Game of Thrones-ish. It's yeah. very like, like, like game strategy, like, okay, this, this. Like, you have to, like, do certain things, you know, to look a certain way, but because this reason for down the line. Yeah. So it's super interesting, yeah. And so, like, one, and that's every time I feel like I understand, like, one little part of it, I'm like, I don't understand any of this. Because it's like, even just from the beginning, like, like, and you think about like these people who, and all the changes they went through, they're like how isolated the mm -hmm. Hawaiian islands were for so long. And then all of a sudden there's like all this introduction of things, like even the idea of like cash crops. And then immediately the Iliahi trade to the, like, was this, this thing that completely transformed mm -hmm. it, even Kamehameha one's time, like way before plantation days for, for yeah. sugarcane. Um, and like all the things and like how they were trying to figure it out then and how they were trying to adjust to like all these new concepts. And I think for, for what it's worth, it was like the adaptability of people then was just so much more now, like more than now than like, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, and to think too, like pretty much it's like a hundred years, right? Yeah. You know, or whatever, 90 something years where this whole commitment like dynasty existed from like, it's, when it becomes like it's established to when it's done, it's kind of crazy. And that many people and like you said, the ability to adapt, right? Like they, like, especially at the end, so many of them like learned in England, went there, took like, I mean, I'll read like Lilio Kalani's like diary. And it's a, it's literally a f almost a financial, like, like spreadsheet. Like she's super good with money. You know, as far as, like, documenting and this and who and where. And, it, and it's just super interesting, right? Like, because, I mean, some things is just that. Some days it's just, like, paid this, did this, did this. You know, so she was very, in her mind, that was very important enough to write it down versus these other actions that are happening in her life, you know. So it's, it's just really kind of interesting to, like, what they've learned, what they took, um, what they did bad. You know, but like, but like everything, you know, because I mean, they're just people. Yeah. And pe I mean, and that's why, I like, when you say those things, I'm like, it's like that human nature thing just running over and over again, right? Whether it's nomads fighting each other for land in this this er this area of like southern Siberia, to like Hawaii, like dealing with other tribes, other islands, other stuff, to like now, like it's very, it's all relative. You know, and it's it's still like always the human dilemma that kind of like it's either beautiful or like like horrible, you know, one, one of the two or somewhere in between, where it's like oh, it's super interesting. Yeah, but man, I mean, like that's what's like I can get so deep into it, and I think that that's like especially sometimes like when you get it gets starts to get kind of like heavy and intense. Like mm -hmm. that's why I love like uh, like humor, comedy. Like yeah. that's just like. I th and I think that's actually a way, and we've, we've talked about this before, like, you know, con with, like, current issues, mm -hmm. using humor as a way to talk about these things, I think is, like, the most powerful. I mean, like, yeah. as a documentary filmmaker, of course, I would love to think that, you know, telling these stories and 
doing this type of thing will make an impact. But I think at the end of the day, like humor is a way to build these bridges in a way that can't be done any other way. Yeah. I agree with that though. Um, it's been, it's been fun, you know, like how, at least for me, I can see where I started, you know what I mean? Which is just pretty much dicking around in the backyard, you know, um, Kave filming me. And then now there's so much more thought and intent and purpose when we do, especially work with companies and stuff like that. You know, it's like, okay, I know this is what you guys like. And this is what you guys like say. Nobody's going to listen or hear or remember, you know. So then we can tweak it and stuff like that and it's cherry. But that has to be the best thing, like getting through to people with comedy, even if it's like, talking about people trespassing or you know what I mean like random stuff yeah and it's like I, I love hearing the stories about when you used to work in school and I think like mm-hmm. I really like I identified with that because I used to work in a school as well or like what you used to do well I used to I used to be a public school teacher I did okay. the, the program teach for America um I still substitute teach from time to time like shout out to Kavikini kids yeah that's right yeah <laughs> they're uh they're so awesome and I mean it's just like and that's a way to like relate to kids as well through mm. humor. Cause like, you know, pounding them with like some, Bruh. you know, kind of heavy stuff and yeah. like, Oh, you have to respect and this and that, but like pulling people in and like getting people to laugh and kind of let their guard down. Cause I feel like oftentimes, especially now it's like people are so on edge and it's so hard yeah. to have an open conversation about anything. And it's yep. just like humor is the way. Yeah. It's, it's fun, bro. Like it's just, it's crazy how well they would, listen to me just because i'm the funny guy you know what i mean whether it's assemblies or in the classroom in the in the cafeteria right they they were they were super dialed and that's a hard audience i mean like oh they'll I, tell you straight oh big and they've t- they've told me straight not not every time it's it's like oh you're funny they're like what's that <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean like you, you call that like a dab or like a dance move mm. like, get out of here we're get out of here we're janitor i'm like they call me a custodian. <laughs> we clean bathrooms. Big difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, man. I love that, though. Yeah. It's like they can bring you down, but, like, when, like, because they are so honest. Kids are so yeah. honest. And, like, I I personally, I'm not very funny. I would try. And my, my only type of humor that would work with my students is just, like, making fun of myself. Self-deprecating. Some people can't do it, though. Yeah? I don't I don't know how. I mean, not 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 that people can't do it, but people who make funny vids you know what i mean yeah it's it's but whatever it all works yeah. a little bit yeah <laughs> i think like last time when the when i was teaching i got super bad allergies one day and like i think the the students just took took pity on me because i was just like trying to get through the lesson you never have some galas hanging out your nose <laughs> you know what i mean one sneeze oh bless yeah. you come yeah. back freaking yeah. just stuck on the shirt <laughs> yeah oh god oh that's the worst guy i remember being in elementary school kind of like must have been sick or whatever is sneeze you know you have, you have a runny nose and then you feel it come out you're oh, like the yeah. little kid sneeze where yeah. It's just yeah and you have to you have to blow the rest out in your shirt <laughs> yeah. you have to you're like yeah you're like Achoo. you know on the way to see you're like exactly <laughs> right there that thing just tacks onto your stuff like yeah. you're like ooh, it's like paper mache yeah i tell you i tell you the thing don't even dry the whole day but here's a question because you go like kind of to a lot of like what most people consider like underdeveloped places. Mm. Do you find that like the people are more happy 
generally speaking, like, so you're, we're, we're playing on this like humor topic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I found like, I've not to say like, they live lives that technically we, we would say is super hard. Yeah. But they find like very simple joy and, and, and joking and camaraderie. And now we live in this like, in America, especially like in an ultra civilized, whatever, whatever label you want to put on it. But, and then we're so serious that like, everything's like anxiety driving now you know yeah i mean i think like there's definitely you know maybe to some extent it's like when i would first go to other countries i would kind of have these ideas that are a little bit of a cliche of like the people who have nothing they actually have so much when really like they face stuff it's really hard i mean i feel like when you really see poverty it's it's it like just it's such a gut punch Mm -hmm. and uh, i think that it like at least for me traveling, it made me appreciate and not take things for granted a lot more. But I think it's just like in a lot of these like, you know, quote unquote underdeveloped or, you know, third world is not really used anymore because it doesn't really apply. But they, they're, what strikes me as well is like how innovative they are. Mm -hmm. Like how innovative people who don't have kind of push the easy button, how good you have to be at so many different things. Like I lived in Cuba uh, I did a semester abroad there and like they um they're cut off like because yeah. of the US blockade and like they make oh. cars work that should not work. Uh, they make isn't things isn't there happen. like a TV show about like oh, I don't about know. Cuban cars? Well it's like they're they're making things out of like cardboard and duct tape and like no, I mean when you go to Cuba all their cars are from the fifties. Oh wow. And they keep them running. Wow. Yeah. I know I know some brothers that would spend top dollar for a fifties <laughs> Yoda. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. But I think yeah, I mean it, it in, in a lot of these countries, you, and I hate to like mash them yeah, all yeah, together too, because everyone is, is, is different, but I think oftentimes you, you do find people are more connected, more connected to mm-hmm. where their food comes from, more connected to, you know, how they consume or the waste that they create, because they have to deal with it, Yeah, you know, and whereas like we just, we're separated from a lot of things, so it is a good eye-opener, like this project I'm taking off for ne- next week in Panama uh, you know, I'm working with this uh, uh, researcher who looks at endangered turtle species, but she works a lot with communities where they eat turtles. Like that's like on the dinner plate because they lack protein. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she's trying to save these species before they go extinct, but she has to be conscientious that it's just like, you know, we go around with little kids and they be like, oh yeah, there's like a turtle, but like there's a turtle carcass and they come show it. And mm-hmm. it's like, that is their, that is their, their protein source. Um, and, and the amazing work that she's been able to do is actually to, uh, try to educate and try to help support to get them more resources. They don't have to be eating turtles because mm. you know, the way that turtles play a, a role in the ecosystem, like, uh, a leatherback turtle can eat thousands and thousands of pounds of jellyfish and mm. the jellyfish eat the early stage larva fish larva. Mm. So there are other big main food sources, fish in these areas, they're all subsistence fishermen. Yeah. So they know it's like, Oh, like if you if you're not taking care of the turtles, there's too many jellyfish. The jellyfish less. eat all the fish, mm. less fish. So just kind of how interconnected it all is. Um, I see. Yeah, that's super interesting. Random facts. <laughs> Random jellyfish facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, please keep them turtles going because I had one Portuguese man of war wrap my leg one time <laughs> in her thigh. Pocho gets you bad. Bro, seven years old. Oh man, she she plus vinegar. I couldn't hop on my pogo stick for like two hours. I was bummed. Yeah, 
Yeah, baby beach, Fuji beach. You guys ever been? Which one is oh, that? in the pond? Yeah, it was like in the on the inside safe part. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm. Not so safe. No, I think the tide had rise, and you know what I mean. Once yeah, it, yeah. once it's in there, it's stuck. It's in there, but the thing wrapped in my shorts. You remember the shorts with the netting inside? Oh, yeah, yeah, Bruh, just a net. diaper. Just, no, you know what I mean. And that gra- the sand over there is real grainy. Ooh, yeah. So I'm bruh, seven it years old, but coarse. that thing, yeah, it's super coarse. So thing just wrapped my leg, and then just a real slow burn. <laughs> yeah, I was almost like. First it was like, what is that? And then it was like, I. <laughs> and then I was like, I. And then next thing you know, she, she. Yeah, my dad just she, she yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what? I already, I've been doing that. <laughs> I'm all empty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, meeting your dad was so surreal because it's like, he's so hilarious and you feel like you know him. Like I felt like I, I knew him. Well, kind of yeah. like you. It's like you, you're so real. Like there's, I feel like sometimes you meet like comedians or people do videos and stuff and they actually have like a on-camera personality thing they sort of put on yeah but I, it was cool because it's like you there was there was no difference and your dad is such like a yeah testimony so, to that yeah, yeah, yeah guys trip out <laughs> yeah they trip out how one guy i think he, they may have m- not even met each other but in the vegas like in, like a vegas bathroom or something <laughs> and the guy maybe like in passing but then while they were like in the stalls they're like hey you know how's this guy's father he's like hey brother yeah and they're like in the stalls i'm like <laughs> amazing yeah not the same stall obviously <laughs> you know what i mean but i don't know <laughs> his vegas trip looks awesome i love how people just put out to make him to like get him bro yeah they did it for cool. him they yeah, did it your fans are the best yeah oh yeah shout out to my fans shout out to all my supporters you guys you guys really is the best you know who I met the other day in the ba- bathroom? It was at that uh, Soldier concert. I met Kawakami. <laughs> oh, the first time you met him? Yeah. And all the work you do on Kawakami, I blow my mind. I got, I, I got nervous. Wait, but, but they only have nervous. urinals. They, they only have porta-potties. They, were you in VIP? Wow. You no, actually, the, uh, no, see, because I and the only reason I got the VIP was uh, the last minute people were bailing because it was raining. Oh. So I got, I got cheaper tickets. Okay. VIP. Oh, nice. You guys are on the loft. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was you there. No, 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 no. I just know the the venue. Yeah. 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 But, it was my first time there. Okay. Because I was thinking, yeah. Because the GA, that's all porta potties, yeah. but it's not the big ones either. No. Yeah. That kind you. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually. It was kind of more fun, like down in the main area. Oh, hundred percent. Like, yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. The the VIP. I mean, that's that's where you're gonna meet the mayor. But um. I mean, <laughs> just yeah. I guess. Yeah, he only rocks VIP, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you could have, you know, I almost missed him because he was just like, you know, baseball hat, like jersey. Oh, yeah. Super, super low key. For but sure. I got, but I got all nervous. I was like, could, couldn't be. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Someone said, oh, it's mayor. It's and then like he said something like, yeah, because it was such bad weather that night. And then we started talking about the weather. And it was bad weather, yeah. Yeah. It was terrible weather, actually, for, a con- for like an outdoor boring. concert. Yeah. A lot of people still showed up, though. Dude, I want to I wanna see one of the concerts that you you do the frontman stuff for. That must be so much fun. Oh, yeah, super fun. Yeah. Super fun. The best is when, like, I just come on and do, like, the cool main or just the main, you know? Mm-hmm. Give it my all for, like, I don't know, six, seven minutes and then. But it's super fun. The fans are always stoked, especially the outer islands because they know that I'm not from there. Mm. So they're just, 
they're on the fences. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. They're like, yeah. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So. You got any coming up? No concerts coming up. Mm-hmm. A few, a few events though. I have actually a couple. I have two, two gigs um, in March on Oahu. Same day. Yeah. So I'm excited. I mean, it is cool to have a lot of time to, for me and Brand to be in here. You know what I mean? We're we're kind of at a point, like a really good point, where we're sitting on a a lot of content. We have a lot of content on paper. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Planned, and then also our sets are almost done. Done. I mean, they're they're done. It's like I start filming, you know. But <clears throat> Dude, I still it. I still want the Captain Cook fight style. I want the. Do you have it for for the punching bag? Do you have a name for him yet? Oh. CC, I mean, Captain Cook could be yeah. his name. Guys would love that. We should get, we should get a hat for him. Reenact. <laughs> That'll be one style. Yes. One I mean, style. When, yeah. If you ever catch Captain Cook in the, you mean in Chinatown back <laughs> alley? Yeah. 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 It's hot sauce for real. <laughs> Throw him on daily burger. See what he do. Yeah. Good shake. Yeah, I get a lot of backlash. People are like, oh, why are you so down on Captain Cook? He's like, he's explorer. He was this like famous navigator. It's not that I don't like respect him for the navigation that he did, but like, guy messed up. Like, he tried to kidnap somebody. Like, if he had stuck to do the you, navigation. Do you think that's like an explorer trait? Like, so, so I'm Portuguese, right? Like, yeah. part. And there's this book about like, um, like Portuguese expo- exploration, oh, man, like, Magellan got like it around too. Africa. And they're <laughs> like, there's some pretty gnarly stories. Yeah. So I'm like, is that just like an explorer thing? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and I like I love getting into the nitty gritty and trying to ask why, but like there were some like that was a couple close calls before. So this was Cook's third big voyage, and he had actually just been in Tahiti before, and there was a plot to kill him there, and he just and they had like staked him out. They were like, oh, this guy's had it, and. Cook got tipped off by like a like some local girl was like, Oh yeah, they're gonna kill you. Hi, Nani girl. Nani <laughs> yeah, girl. Yeah. Freaking Nani. I thought but, I knew it. I knew she was a the tip off type. But he his his tactic of I mean, I just don't think that's the most advisable thing. So like somebody would do something he didn't like, like, you know, oftentimes he would go to areas whether he was in Tahiti, Tuamotus, or any of these when he was doing his long Pacific mm-hmm. voyages. Sometimes stuff would get stolen. He would have these like kind of trading relationships where you just like roll up and kind of demand a lot of stuff. And then oftentimes they would have, he would give them things and, you know, like iron nails or other things that they, people would want there. He would also leave a ton of disease (laughs) like wherever he went. Um, But oftentimes, you know, there would be miscommunications and this and that. And, you know, some of the more stuff would get taken, Mm -hmm. you know, taken from, like the the ships that they had but his move was just to kidnap somebody and like ransom them and even in in what happened in tahiti where they were going to stake him out and kill him is that uh there were three guys who mutinied who were just like uh we'd rather live in tahiti than go back to like cold ass england wow and then he i don't blame him he ransomed some of the chiefs there to try to get his men to come back so it's like of course like the locals there were like what the hell like you know like of course we're gonna like not go along with what you said and like (laughs) even when you know when he made it to well first actually his first encounter with hawaiians was here on Kauai, Mm -hmm. um and people were super friendly to him 
and he like uh you know still knowingly that was the thing is like kind of as tough as like he knowingly introduced all the diseases like he knew his men were like messed up yeah and he like let them all interact and then he went so that was in 1778 and then he went up north to sort of uh see if there was a route to the northwest passage up like near alaska mm-hmm. and by the time he'd come back the venereal diseases he'd introduced in Kauai had already spread to all the other islands oh and they knew they knew they were like these holly guys like got us all sick Whoa. like there's a kind of idea that oh they didn't understand how like the germs worked and this and that but like they they knew like they yeah. put two and two together and we're like oh we didn't have all this and now we do wow so the audacity i tell you <laughs> well and that's the thing is like there's this whole theory that they thought cook was lono like it, they, yeah the white the white sails the yeah the whatever they would equate with the embodiment of that they thought captain cook was lono yeah. well there's an idea it was actually so like, there are accounts, mostly from Cook's men, that they're like, oh, we treated us like gods. And there was like, no, they just, like, welcomed you. They were just nice to you guys. Yeah. And mentioned Lono because it was Makahiki season. See? And they couldn't speak th- Hawaiian, so they just were like, oh, they think we're a god. And then, but, like, if they knew you brought disease, why would they think that you are a god of fertility? Like, mm. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And people are like, oh, well, they specifically thought, you know, Cook was, Cook was Lono. But, like, Cook's name sounds more like Ku, the war god. Mm. And, like, they call it Kuke. And it sounds a lot more like Ku. And guy had guns and was, like, kind of violent. So it would make... If, if any god he was going to be, he would have been Ku and not yeah. Lono. Yeah. They got a little bit... They ate a little bit too much banana, banana, green bananas. Okay. <laughs> that brother is not Lono. <laughs> no. 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 I mean... I know about it probably back in seventeen seventy eight trying to toot his own horn, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah, man. When you come back from your trip, you're gonna have to give us some updates. Yeah, guy freaking dude. Thank you for I literally texted you today. <laughs> Cause I was like, Brown, was me and Brown were talking about the podcast like we always do. And then I was like, Oh yeah, we should have Trevor on the pod. He's like, Yeah, what is he doing today? It's like, I you're right. So thank you for thank you so much for coming, bro. No, I appreciate it. I mean, I was already, I was here at the, just like around the corner at Historical Society doing some research, as your resident nerd does. But no, man, it's an honor. And um, yeah, I'm just, I love your stuff and can't wait to get some collaborations in the works. Coming. Yeah, bro. Yeah, no, nah, thank you. And this is one of many, 100%. We already locked you in for next yeah, month. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, so, yeah, do more research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More research you, you find, the more we learn. Yeah, the more they get to learn. So no, I mean, I learned I learned much more about. I mean, I can definitely, what do they call it, Valau? Mm-hmm. Definitely Valau. Yeah, talk plenty, but um, I love just sort of listening, hearing your guys' stories. I love hearing about your experiences and just absorbing. Right on, yep. bro. Well, guys, that you know, if you guys are still tuned in and listening, please give brother Trevor a hand, um, yeah. round of applause for joining us, and thank you guys. Back home, in your car, cleaning your house, whatever you guys doing for tuning into our podcast. Um, we really appreciate it. Special shout out to all of my Patreon members, How's This Guy, and How's This Podcast supporters. Don't forget to download, like, and um, watch the videos on YouTube, guys. Stay tuned for next week's episode. New episodes every single Tuesday, guys. We look forward to seeing you, and aloha. Mahalos. Shoot. 
Yeah, yeah. Just that like that, awesome. brother.